George Lucas, 33 years old, writer and director of Star Wars. His first feature film for Warner Brothers, THX 1138, also science fiction, but of a very different kind. His second, Universal's American Graffiti, which recalled his adolescent years in a small town in California. His third film, the phenomenally successful Star Wars, which he wrote far from Hollywood at his home in Northern California. I think one of the key factors in the uh, success is that it's a positive film. It has heroes and villains, and uh, that it essentially uh, is a fun movie to watch. It's been a long time since people have been able to go to the movies and see a sort of straightforward, wholesome, fun adventure. You killed my father! The Schwarzenegger, you have to kind of go deep into the voice. You gotta, like, relax it. You, you uh, killed my... No, no, ah, no. Ah. no you, you have to talk like this when you're going to talk about the state of California. And he has that kind of accent in California. I'm going to talk to Governor Jerry Brown, and we're going to make sure that everybody gets the election and the results that they wanted, and... Uh, I look at this uh, other candidate like he's a girly man, and I did actually say that in my uh, announcements that he is a girly man. All right, now I'm making him sound like a, just a generic German guy. And welcome back, everyone. He's Austrian. Austrian, well, yeah, Austrian. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, and so, in lieu of our enthralling discussion about uh, um, the wonderful Arnold Schwarzenegger, let's talk about actually something else. For, we haven't done this in a little while. Uh, I re required reading, and uh, don't so, be intimidated. You don't have to read anything. We're no, but saying. you but you may want to read this one, and it's not it's not as difficult to get as the hundred sex scenes book. Right. This is a book that you can find at your local library, as Andrew and I did, and it was funny how I think we both kind of got it at the same time yeah. without really telling we, each other to get it. We didn't plan on this. We just started reading the book at the exact same time. No. It's called the making of star Wars. Yeah. Now this film came out in 2007. The book. Of, yeah. The book. Yeah. Did the I say film, film came out a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> the book came out in it, 2007. To, to coincide the with the 30th anniversary. anniversary of star Wars. Yeah. And it, it's this exhaustively researched, giant volume all about the making of star wars a new oh. hope oh god it's exhaustive now i i'm sure that maybe some of you are you might already be sick of star wars by now because the force awakens has been out for over a month and i mean we've talked about star wars now multiple times on the podcast because i had rewatched the episodes and then of course we saw the force awakens right but let's just talk about a new hope because and the making of a new hope well specifically that because yeah for me i love a book that really digs in deep into the process yeah. and this book is just process 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 this takes you from from the moment that george lucas decided uh you know to make films <laughs> yeah basically to make films it, itself you know to come to the point where he created you know a movie that changed for a lot of people, what movie going was. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's so exhaustive and yet I was never taken out of the book too much, but I'm actually, I'm a little curious to hear your take on it because for me, yeah, they go into a lot of 
sometimes very technical details. Sometimes, yeah. But did it ever? Did that ever throw you off? Did you think, oh, this is so technical, I don't even understand it? Or is it because I found it easily readable? Well, uh, let me say, J.W. Rinsler, the the author of this book, yeah, he does a great job uh, describing several different aspects of Star Wars production. He talks about uh, the early drafts and about how the script changed and George Lucas's collaboration oh, yeah. with several people. And he also gets uh, pretty deeply into the creation of ILM. Oh, yeah. And that's that, the that's part... so fascinating. Yeah. And they and when they mention certain technical things like about like certain film stocks or about certain devices, it didn't... Uh, it wasn't something that I really had an understanding of, but I really did get this feeling of there were challenges that these people had to come up with. And even though I didn't quite understand them, I understand, okay, they solved them, but that's not even half the story. No, it, th there are so many components to how this movie got made. Like one of the things that I, that I thought about reading this was that the story of the making of star Wars is something that, D that kind of simultaneously props up the auteur theory and knocks it down. Mm. On the one hand, without George Lucas, you would not have Star Wars. Certainly. Reading this book, he really was someone who was there like every step of the way. And, and, and especially as he came from an independent film background, he had it in him that I have just a certain way that I want to do this. And of course, sometimes that, caused some clashes because he was working on a big a much bigger production than he had before right but on the other hand so he's he's the one who has the whole story he has the vision right and the vision is a key thing if, but it, to use the metaphor if you know george lucas throughout this book he is the captain of the ship he's the captain of the ship but he but there are so many other people that if they didn't rise up to the level that lucas wanted him them to we wouldn't have the movie that we do today. Like, no. cause the other auteurs, so to speak, the other authors of the movie, I mean, John Williams, right. He's a key person. I mean, without that score, you haven't got anything. Right. And then you also have uh, a couple of people, ILM that were really important. This guy, John Dykstra, Right. And uh, who actually created a his own camera, the Dykstra Flex? Right. Which I I just love that name. <laughs> I, it, it, in a way, that was just kind of like 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 a a, a joke name because yeah. it, you know he had, he had worked under uh, what was it Douglas Trumbull? Yeah. And on, Trumbull had so, a, on soil on not soil and green uh, silent running. silent running. Yeah. And he he had worked with Douglas Trumbull and, and Trumbull had like the Trumbull Flex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, what Dykstra had created wasn't something that was necessarily original, but they just call it, oh, he made the Dykstra flex. Yeah. So, I mean, you have him. You also have this other guy, Richard Edlund. Then you also have, uh, like, I almost look at... Alan Ladd. Alan Ladd was a key person, well, in the executive Alan area. Alan Ladd Jr., yeah, the son of Alan Ladd was an executive at 20th Century Fox. Who, without whom the project probably wouldn't even have come to Fox's attention. No. For because, the longest time, he was the only person who really understood what Lucas was going for. Well, he and didn't, he had to really go to bat. He didn't even understand what the movie was per se, but he liked George Lucas. And he saw American Graffiti and thought, okay, this guy is really talented. This guy has something to say. And it's interesting because when you read the, the story of it, you know, sometimes it's an interesting thing when filmmakers will have a big hit and it will change their status. Like when I read the book Final Cut, there's a sort of separation between uh, when uh, 
like studio people saw like an like a cut of the deer hunter before the movie had come out and thought wow this is incredible we need to get this guy michael cimino on here to make this movie and mm. and then the movie comes out and is this big hit and all of a sudden it's like oh now i have a little bit more power let's see what i can do with it george lucas though i mean luckily he's not he wasn't as crazy as uh as yeah. michael cimino uh sorry my nose was a little stuffy uh so all anyway right. <laughs> yeah, George Lucas is certainly not crazy. And no, he was very. The one thing you can say is he's a lot of things from reading this book. I got a much deeper understanding of George Lucas, specifically in that time period, yeah. reading this book. But what's also great is that Rinsler uh, uses only interviews from that period. He doesn't go outside of the 1970s. Yeah. He has like a wealth of. Uh, interviews from people who were, uh, I guess there was this guy named Charles Lippincott or something, and he was like the kind of press person at Lucasfilm, and he sat down with Lucas and other actors and technical people, and I love that because, you know, it's easy to say certain things, like if you watch George Lucas today, he'll say things about Star Wars that I don't know if they necessarily totally contradict what he would say in the 70s, in some ways he's consistent, but time changes how you look at things like Lucas. Oh, precisely. He, cause when you hear him today, like I rewatched part of this documentary called empire of dreams, which you can watch on YouTube. Yeah. And, uh, it's the making of the star Wars trilogy. Um, and he claims in it that he started out, he wrote a script that was like 200 pages and decided, okay, this is much too big. I'm just going to take this first third and make that into a movie. And that's a new hope. Which is quite the story that Rinsley tells. It is and isn't true. It is true that Lucas, at one point in one of the drafts, the script was too long, and he took a segment of the story and drew upon that. Right. But I mean, as I mean, you're also I mean, you're a writer. You you could probably see in this though that Lucas, he was trying to work out as a writer how to do this. And when you're as a writer, you can go through multiple drafts and things just change based on okay, I either left room for to change this or I didn't know what I was doing. Oh, yeah. That happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. I, and, and I, and I totally The first too. drafts of Star Wars are very interesting to look at in, in Rinsler's book. And, yeah. you know, if Lucas said, you know, I only took a part of this and decided to make that into a film, he's partially right because, uh, you know, the elements were there. But then what Rinsler does, which is really intriguing, as he talks about different drafts of the script – he highlights elements of the of each draft that would go into what we now know as Star Wars. Yeah. And yeah. at the very start, it's minimal. Yeah. I mean, only like the jet most general, vaguest ideas are are part of that first draft. There, like, oh, there's a princess. Or there's a there's a general yes or there's a general or a, an empire that and there evil. is a character named Darth Vader who's sort of devious and villainous yeah and George Lucas spent most of the early seventies working on these drafts when he, yeah you know, when he wasn't working on like American Graffiti well no well no I think that he I think he made the deal for Star Wars around the time either right before American Graffiti came out or shortly after. I think that what happened was American Graffiti came out and was such a big hit, and he had initially made a deal that was for, I think Star Wars' original budget was like $3 million, yeah. but then as he worked through the script more, he realized, no, I'm going to need more money for this. And the other interesting thing about the script 
is that in those early scripts, you see elements of things that would happen in the prequels. You do, yeah, yeah, it, because and they characters that, like named like Mace Windu, yeah, and thing and and certain places that show up later, like Mustafar yeah. and and uh, I don't think they mentioned Coruscant, but uh, I, I like other planets yeah. that just get sort of like mentioned. But the most fascinating thing to me, though, is that Lucas kind of mentions uh, he says outright, like writing isn't my strong suit. He's yeah, kind weird. of upfront about that. Well, no, yeah, he said like when he was in college, he took a creative writing class, and he just couldn't really latch on to it. Like, like and, and, well, Francis Ford Coppola was the one who really pushed, pushed him it, to write yeah. more. You know, whereas Lucas was just more interested in visuals, and that, and you could see in the book how, you know, by this point when he was making Star Wars, he was more of a writer. But yeah. perhaps this does go a ways to explain some of the issues with the prequels because if you have somebody who's not writing isn't their true passion but they're kind of forced to write because i mean either through ego or for some other reason he didn't get someone else to work on the scripts for the most part in the prequels you get what you got yeah and he's more of somebody who every step of the way though was really interested in the look but oh and i mentioned another auteur of the movie so to speak is uh, ralph mccrory Yes. The, oh man, the, the concept. Designer, you would not have the movie you have today without Ralph McQuarrie. You could yeah. say, without without him making those drawings. And this is this is going to be a little aside, sure. Because I don't think you've ever seen Star Wars Rebels, the the, car, the animated show. Not really. No. There are elements in Ralph McQuarrie's early designs that go into Rebels oh, that cool. you see are directly quoted by that show. So like I, other I'll, designs that are in the book. Yeah, like an early an early design for Chewbacca that becomes a character oh, in Rebels. Oh, so is he? Oh wow! And that that that, guy, that design. And an early design for R two D two with you know the arms on the side of his head that goes in the Star Wars nice. Rebels. It's just uh, nothing significant, but it's something I noticed because <coughs> while me. I wait to go to work, I watch whatever cartoon happens to be on TV. Right. Uh, but you know George Lucas, we get on, we get down on him nowadays for not being a great writer, and he probably isn't. But still, during the process of writing Star Wars, he refined what he did over the course of several years. Yeah, and he brought in other people to look at his work, and he even, and even as he was preparing to yeah. shoot, he brought in people to punch up the dialogue. Yeah, well, the the, the people who wrote American Graffiti with him, like, and uh, what's fascinating too, when you read the book, he he act, the author actually puts. Side by side, dialogue from Lucas's draft and then the punched up dialogue. And sometimes it's minimal. Right. But some of it does make a difference. Like some of it is more about not making things sound quite as uh, wooden. And again, you're breaking my heart. <laughs> if George Lucas had another person to punch up the, li the, the lines of the prequels, we would not have the, that problem anymore. And what's funny, though, is that I've heard the rumor that Tom Stoppard did do punch-up work on Revenge of the Sith. And Why he let he... that one pass? Jeez! I he don't know. should be yelling at him. He probably just punched up Obi-Wan's lines. Jeez. Like, he's he's the one that sounds most like a Star Wars right, character. But, back but the point the is, well, there's so much, again, outside the script, though. I mean, we get into the actual production, and... Uh, I I, I kind I felt so bad for Lucas because the studio kind of comes off like the villain yeah. of the making of the story because they I, they kept slashing the budget they kept saying no you can't have any more money and you have to start shooting in two weeks. 
Another technological achievement was the creation of 33 fully operative robots. R2-D2 was the crowning achievement of these mechanical creatures. An achievement of another kind was the creation of the more human-like droid C-3PO. He and his companion became both dream and nightmare to their creator, George Lucas. When I started writing this, I found the most intriguing thing was to take two robots and make them into human beings and make them the most interesting characters uh, in terms of the comedy element and the uh, sort of I wanted to make the film around them, use them as a framework for the film. And I knew when I did that that I would be getting myself into a lot of trouble. And yeah. you, you get a sense of, okay, if they had only had, if they had had just a little bit more time to work out some technical details, you know, maybe Lucas wouldn't have been quite as miserable oh, as yeah. he was shooting and it. You and get, he was so miserable. You get you get the the clear sense that while working on episode uh, episode four, that George Lucas was being pulled in twenty different directions and was absolutely frantic. Yeah, well, he Which, put himself in a situation where he was very passionate about the project and he wanted to do it, but he was also taking a major step up from where he had been in his career before. Yeah, Star where, Wars was a movie on a much greater scale. No, he hadn't made movie. a movie. THX and American Graffiti, they were both made for under a million dollars. Yeah. And, you know, he's basically left alone. Whereas here, you know, he's dealing with a major studio. He's dealing with people like Alec Guinness. Yeah. He's dealing with, oh man, I just love the whole section about how British film crews oh. are so, like, Unmoving union regulations in Britain. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're such buggers. Yeah, they mentioned that in Empire of Dreams how yeah. how strict the unions were about, yeah, about that, that you couldn't shoot. Overage. Yeah, you couldn't shoot over uh, past five thirty. Which it's funny for me as a, as a I've made a lot some independent films on my own. Yeah, there's no set time limit. I no. often will, you know, so occasionally I'll have to stop just because I'm starting to notice. Okay, my crew and cast are looking really tired. Everyone's wilting. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I try not to put people you don't in a want position to be, you where... You don't want to be a slave driver, but then, on the other hand, you have to get some things done. You don't want... you need Sometimes you need a couple more minutes to finish a scene. Yeah, and, but, but and, the British and, film crews, they had very strict union regulations where, at a certain hour, at the very minute that the hour changed, yeah. it was quitting time. Did I, I don't no know matter if... whether you were in the middle of something or not. I don't know if I told you this, but uh, someone else who complained about that... Uh, on film, on uh, and it's documented as Stanley Kubrick. Oh, really? Yeah. He, uh, well, I mean, you might almost want to make a joke about, well, of course. <laughs> yeah. But no, there's footage of him on the set of uh, Full Metal Jacket, and he's just so mad about, like, England film crews, the tea time they take. Yeah. And it's like they take a break here and a break there, and... Yeah, and I, f I felt bad for him in that way because he started off the film in Tunisia and he didn't really have those regulations. No. But then. But Tunisia itself was its own experience. Yeah. It's well, a desert country, and the, the, the month they go to film there, it has its heaviest rainstorms in over a Yeah, there was a storm that destroyed the set, yeah. which, which incidentally got repeated when he went to film Phantom Menace there. Huh. <laughs> So, yeah, in the documentary about the, the making of Phantom Menace, the same exact thing happens where a giant storm wrecks the film set. And uh, 
I have to wonder if that experience made Lucas decide during the prequels, okay, screw it. No more on set. Everything is in a green screen. <laughs> I can't take this anymore. You have such a traumatic experience early in your career. And then when you're like, oh, I'll revisit this thing. I'll go back to the place where I had such a horrible time. Maybe it's not so horrible. Storm! Yeah, because, I mean... Oh, I'm, you know what's interesting? Yeah. Remember in, in episode four when uh, C-3PO is walking and he walks past like all those bones? Yeah. They went back to the same location when shooting the Phantom Menace and the bones were still there. Wow, that's yeah. pretty cool. I don't think that was in the book, but that's just something I remember from knowledge. Yeah, well, I never really noticed, and uh, I thought the whole thing was shot in Tunisia, but apparently, though, I think the book also said that there was some stuff reshot in De- De- Death Valley or something. Oh, things with uh, with the Banthas and the Sand R two D two, yeah, like little pickup like shots and and stuff like that. Yeah, I also because um, they had to, they didn't get as much stuff as they needed in Tunisia, partially because of the weather, partially because weapon break, like the, partially because of the weapons. breakneck ske- schedule it took to get there. The robots kept breaking down. Yeah, and R two D two kept breaking down. Yeah. Um, and poor Anthony Daniels just sweating in that C-3PO costume. Yeah, I, I, I felt bad for him reading about that. Um, yeah, just so many fascinating things. I, mean, I, I don't want to, sp- I don't know if I could say spoil, but I don't want to reveal too many things that may come as good surprises for readers. But uh, also just certain fates of characters that changed literally during the production itself. And actors who weren't happy about that. Yeah, because uh, there have been a lot of rumors, or let's just say, without Guinness, he, in the original script, he was going to stay alive and be yeah, there. Yeah, in the very late draft of the script, uh, Obi-Wan did not die in the Death Star. No, but then as Lucas was shooting, and to his credit, I think this was a good decision. Was it's a to, fantastic decision. Yeah, because you leave this big emotional gap that you know oh my god i can't believe he's gone and, and it raises the stakes you have also the uh, the irony that you know part of the whole the whole mission is that help me bring obi-wan to alderaan so because he will help us the princess never gets to meet obi-wan kenobi yeah which is funny because in the early drafts they're basically like the the main characters yeah uh and of course at one point han solo is a lizard yeah, yeah, I just love that. Um, I really like. Uh, I speaking of actors, it was really interesting to hear about Peter Cushing's uh, experience. On yeah, that he genuinely loved it. Yeah, it, it, and it was like when George Lucas specifically requested him. You know, Peter Cushing had you know he had gotten a little older, and you know he had done all that Hammer stuff, but like his his most recent work was probably not that great. Yeah, but but when he heard like he'd been specifically requested, he was like, "Oh, that makes me feel good." Yeah, well, he's a, he was an older actor, yeah. and you know, at a certain point, there are only so many times that you can put a stake through Dracula's heart. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm sure he'd probably done that or created the Frankenstein monster probably a dozen times. Yeah, and uh, yeah. yeah, so that that was all very fascinating, and just and, how they came to things with designs and and, uh, and it was cool to learn about Peter Cushing, like. We've talked about Christopher Lee and Vincent Price yeah. and Boris Karloff. Chris, uh, Peter Cushing is a man who played his share of villains. And he just ends up coming off as one of the nicest men who ever yeah. existed. Well, that's like Carrie Fisher had trouble acting mean against him. Like he, She she had trouble getting to her the level that Princess Leia is supposed showing to have. Showing hostility. Yeah, showing hostility because... Because Peter, he, because Peter Cushing in real life was just a really nice old man. Yeah. Now, maybe that says something about Carrie Fisher not getting into character enough, but... 
I mean, but it doesn't help. No, 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 for sure. I, I, I am now in firm belief that the best villains in cinema are played by just extremely nice people. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I think that's just the way it is. Like, movie stars who play heroes all the time, they become douchebags because they have everything handed to them and they're, like, the lead actors and everything. But then when you become a villain, you're the kind of person who will... <laughs> Who was like willing to take that little that smaller well, role? When we, well, Alan Rickman. We it's, talked about right, him, Alan and Rickman. he, from all reports, he was basically the nicest guy you could ever meet. And the funniest thing uh, is just an aside. When I was listening to uh, Kevin Smith gave like a very heartfelt long podcast about Alan Rickman because he had passing. worked with him on Dogma. Right? Yeah, on, on Dogma, and also I mean Die Hard kind of changed his life. Uh, it was one of those big movies for him. Um, but he's like the way that he talked about him, it was the exact opposite of how Kevin Smith talked about Bruce Willis after working with him on Cop Out, <laughs> where Bruce Willis came off as the biggest douchebag on the planet. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, oh my God, like my entire vision of this guy has been ruined by working with him. Yeah. And how terrible he is to like people and how he doesn't give a damn. Whereas Alan Rickman. You know, he actually stayed Kevin Smith's friend for years and years after the making of Dogma, and would actually and would call Kevin Smith and ask him like, <laughs> "Wait, where are you doing? Where are you up to?" And he'd be very droll, of course, like, "Are you in England now? Let's just get some dinner." And <laughs> just, just, yeah, uh, yeah. You often hear about that with villains being very nice, and uh, okay, yeah. I, whereas, I, whereas I, the heroes. I mean, I guess it's the cliche also of, was it in The Rocketeer, where uh, uh, Timothy Dalton is uh, such yeah. a jerk? <laughs> yeah. I don't uh, know I, what it is, but no, nice guys make great villains. Yeah, I don't think... I don't, it doesn't seem like there were There's hope many... for you yet, Jack. You could become a great up. film villain. Indeed. I, I don't think that there were any jerks during the making of Star Wars in the cast. It seemed like everybody was pretty... Well, most of them were, were new. and Yeah, either they were new or they were character actors. Uh, I mean, Alec Guinness, of course. I found it interesting that, as a, as a small thing, that Kenny Baker, actually, he could only do the movie if he had his acting partner with him. Huh. That, the, the guy Jack Purvis, yeah, they did, they who was like the Jawa, or he he would play like little people yeah. to fill in the cast. Uh, yeah. yeah, I remember that. They mentioned that briefly. That briefly, I didn't think about it much though. Yeah, huh. and uh, no, but it was just um, and then of course the whole editing process and how oh, screw yeah. that. How yeah, I oh the my, probably one of my favorite lines in the whole thing is uh, you know when Lucas he shows uh, one of the early cuts to. Uh, some friends. He he show, brings Brian De Palma. He brings Steven Spielberg. Yeah. He brings a couple of his other film people, and they watch the movie. And uh, there's kind of like a mixed reaction. Like Spielberg's the one who's like, "Oh, I loved it. Oh, it's gonna be like it's gonna make a hundred million dollars." And Brian De Palma's like, "I hate it." Yeah. And he specifically says, and I quote. What is this shit? Why don't people die when they get? Why don't the people? No, why don't people bleed when they get shot? Well, he must have not gotten that. No. But I just no, 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 no. I I misquoted again. He says, "What is this force shit?" <laughs> <laughs> I could just picture Brian De Palma saying that. And but the funniest thing though is how he ended up kind of rewriting the uh, opening crawl for Lucas. Yeah. And, uh, I as mu as as much as Brian De Palma got down on Lucas, I mean he was 
a great help to him. I mean, yeah. it was it was he helped Lucas cast the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they, they both were doing dual casting for Star Wars and Carrie. And they, yeah, and they and he you know helped with the opening crawl. And you know, despite you know how abusive he he was, he was try he was be, giving his honest. I think opinion. he was just kind of being like a friendly like, what is this? Yeah. I think well, also you have to remember too that he was seeing an early cut. Yeah. So. You have you're watching a version of the movie without most of the finished special effects, without John Williams' music. That must be kind of a miserable experience. Yeah. You're watching like Alec Guinness and a guy with a Welsh like high pitched Welsh accent in, in a Darth Vader suit fighting each other with like glowing sticks yeah. that aren't even glowing. Yeah, but now, it's just a fascinating look at movie how movies can kind of be. This sounds silly, but magic. Yeah, the way that they create all the special effects, it's like we're trying to make you really believe that you're seeing space and space battles in a way that you've never seen it before. Do you know what it bring? What it? You know what I like to compare to this? Mm. Uh, George Lucas was making Star Wars. He finishes it in 1977. Yeah, uh, but it also reminds me a lot of the steps that Alejandro Jodorowsky took to make Dune. Okay. Now, Dune, of course, never gets as far. As no, Star it didn't Wars. get past pre-production. No, it didn't. But I was thinking about the the situations that they were in. Uh, Jodorowsky was look. Uh, you know, once he had done all the pre-production, and he was looking for funding. He figured that the budget of Dune would be around fifteen million dollars. Yeah. Which is a similar amount to what Lucas got. Like he did, like thirteen million. No, no, no. Lucas the ult, the budget ultimately was eleven million, and it went like three million dollars over budget. Okay, so it didn't even reach fifteen. Million. For what Lucas did, it wasn't like a low, low budget, but it wasn't as much as he really needed to make no. it. And but then think about the position Jodorowsky was in, I and mean, he was trying to do a, a special effects movie, uh, a sci-fi movie. One that had spiritual undertones based upon this book, which which a lot of people probably didn't understand. Well, it was it's impen it's impenetrable for some people, right? And then he asks for fifteen, and he's asking for fifteen million dollars to make it. Yeah, uh, even though he's done all this pre production, and all the studios turn him down. And reading about Star Wars, I understand why. I, oh Jonah yeah, Lusky's Dune is talked about as one of the greatest well, not unmade sci fi films of like. And, but then think about fifteen million dollars, which doesn't sound like a lot for us, but back then that was a ton of money for a sci-fi film. Oh yeah, well that was because, and also, well, it didn't, it wasn't a viable genre right. for uh, outside of like the Planet of the Apes films and two thousand one. They didn't really make money, and then Lucas, I think, talked about this either in a book, in the book or the documentary that. 2001 made the most money, but it made like $25 million. Yeah. And the Planet of the Apes movies made something like less than that. So it was looked at as like a genre for kids. It wasn't really taken seriously. And yet, and Star Wars, even though it's a movie that children can enjoy, everybody can enjoy it. Yeah. And whereas Dune, it was one of those things that just sometimes happens where I bet if Jodorowsky had pitched Dune... Like in the way that he was trying to do, like a few years after Star Wars, maybe he could have gotten it made. That's that's possible. I mean, because after Star Wars was made, there was that big rush to make the Star Wars knockoffs, yeah, which resulted in films like Flash Gordon, yeah. which you may or may not like, yeah, and uh, the Black Hole, yeah. 
God damn the black hole. Ugh. Well, well, the, I love what the the author even yes! he brings up the black hole that. and he says this is the movie that the studio feared was going to happen with Star Wars. Yeah, where you have all of these really silly talking robots. When did Dune come out? Lynch's Dune, eighty four. Okay, so it's conceivable that you know that Dune got made because of the buzz around Star Wars. Uh, you could say that. But, yeah. Well, the, the, know, rev- the renewed interest happened because fiction. of that. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's easy now to understand why Jodorowsky's who never got off the ground. Well, it was also, again, it was so. It's not even so much that it was so weird because a lot of weird movies were getting made in the seventies. Right. It was because of the budget, as they said in the documentary. He could get part of the budget, but he needed like an extra five, five million. million. Right. And you know. It, there was no Kickstarter in that time, so actually it's funny. Oh man, if Alice, if Alejandro Jodorowsky ever has a Kickstarter, I'm giving. Oh, he one. did Wait, for what? He, you missed out on it. He had. God damn it! A, uh, <laughs> I should have told you about it. He has a uh, uh, a new movie coming out. Um, pretty. I don't know if he's done with it yet, but um, let me just look this up. Oh, it's it's the sequel to Dance of Reality. Really? Yeah, it's called Endless Poetry. And um, it uh, the campaign for it was uh, oh god did this ha- I'm wondering I'm just briefly checking this because now I'm curious if this was successful oh yeah um okay I'm looking at a campaign yeah for uh oh here's the best thing about it though all right. Alejandro Jodorowsky, father of the Midnight movie, wants to exchange your money into poetic money to make his latest film. <laughs> and he has all this this whole thing about poetic money in uh, his videos. Uh, I should money. when we're done, I'll actually I'll show you a, a video that he made. This was actually a year ago that I think he was working on this, so I don't know if he already shot it or it's already done or what's going on about it. But uh, but well, yeah, the point is though. Thankfully, Joe Roski is now reaching out to fans who are giving him money to make movies. Great. And, you know, to get back to our discussion okay. of, of sci-fi films of and Star Wars and Joe Roski, yeah. I it's, you know, the, his previous film to Dune was The Holy Mountain. Yeah. Which he made for a million dollars. That's amazing. That is amazing. But still, that's a big gap between a $1 million film and, and a $15 million Yeah, I mean... And, it, but think about... I mean, Lucas was in a similar position where he made American Graffiti... That was a big success, though. The Holy Mountain... Well, that's the thing. If the Holy Mountain had made American Graffiti money, maybe he could have gotten it done. Yeah, but the Holy Mountain was never going to make American Graffiti No, Lucas... No, 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 no. Lucas... It was interesting because THX is more, a little bit more experimental. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm going to rewatch that soon, but... Uh, um, yeah, but American Gra- Graffiti was his challenge to make a big commercial comedy movie, and he succeeded. Yeah. So... Whereas Joe Roski didn't do that. He was very much on the fringes. And, you know, yeah, he was known in the midnight movie cult film world. Yeah. But as soon as he went to Hollywood, it was like, no, where, where are you kidding? You want no. you want, you want Salvador Dali to pop up in this for $500,000 per second or whatever it was? You know, no way. 100000 per minute, yeah. Yeah. I And, you know, we can lament the loss of Dune. And we could say that the studios didn't have enough vision, but I mean, when you look at it from a practical standpoint, yeah, you see, obviously, it's not just about, you know, films being, it's not just about studios being afraid of art, and it's not just about, yeah. you know, 
worrying about counterculture. No, it was it was about a lot of its it, business. It, it was it was probably a very sound business decision to turn down yeah. Joe DeRosa. Yeah, because do you want to be the studio head who greenlights a fifteen million dollar Dune picture, <laughs> which has things like a drop of blood what? impregnates a woman, and I, at the end of the movie, a guy explodes and all of his Bo- like remains like what is it? it rains over people and they become the messiah i don't, I don't think even that's remember happened, but still i wouldn't put it past i think to film. bring it back and around that... though, to what you're talking about though i mean you, but in that documentary you do see that Jodorowsky, his process of putting together the designs and developing the story though yeah. it wasn't that far off from lucas it's just that no. lucas had the vision of create like I want to make these this big gigantic dogfight. I want to see this vision in space that's almost more as he says like a documentary. Like you're there, so I have to create a whole new company. Right. Whereas I wonder if Jodorowsky had if Dune had gotten greenlit, who would he have gone to make the special effects? Well, I mean, he was relying on Dan O'Bannon. Yeah, but. You watch, I, and, you watch Dark Star, the visual effects in that don't hold up at they're all. They're not Star Wars, but I mean, for the time... They're okay. Uh, and I don't think Jodorowsky would have made a film that... Let's say there's a universe where Jodorowsky's Dune and Star Wars exist together. Yeah. Jodorowsky's Dune would not have the same quality of effects that Star no, Wars No, probably not. Probably not. It would probably, I don't see yeah. Jodorowsky pulling that off. Uh, particularly well. He's a fine director, he's a great artist, but I don't see how he could have set up the technological department that would have made his sprawling space opera possible. I I need you to make sure my rating of Frank Herbert is is complete. Yeah, I rape Frank Herbert with Dune. You have to rape your creator. With love. Yeah. Whereas Lucas's rape was a little bit gentler of Kurosawa and Flash Gordon. And uh, <laughs> and I, I get the know. feeling that Jodorowsky's Dune would have ended up being a very Flash Gordon-y film, based upon the designs I saw. Uh, well, it would have... Well, yes and no, because, like, Flash Gordon wasn't that weird a thing. No, I mean, but it's it's certainly... Jodorowsky it, operates on a whole other it plane. It has its foot in these 1950s pulp visions of what space is okay and what space travel is and what it means to be a spaceman and to have like a sword fight in space yeah and that's not what star wars is no star wars is more rooted in fairy tales i don't think a that's even bit. necessarily the, well, the thing well, it's like well, in it's, star it's wars, an amalgam in star wars you would never see a rocket ship that looks like a stereotypical 1950s rocket ship you know what i mean i guess not i guess the designs like with Lucas, what's one of the fascinating things I, in the guess... book is how he takes from a lot of different places. He takes from like World War II planes, but then he also takes from other designs. Right. But I, I guess what I'm saying is Jodorowsky's film would have looked, I hesitate to say, a lot more campy. Ah, <laughs> oh, bring it back I think around. I, I think I figured it out. Are you ca- like a movie with Orson Welles? And Salvador Dali, how can that not be campy? Well, if that if a... that wasn't campy, it would be the bo- most boring piece of crap ever. You uh, you make a legitimate point. All right, so let's get back to the book, though. Okay. So what, like, I think that this I, book... I don't think we want to talk too much about the details because people should read this book for themselves. Oh, and again, it's very exhaustive, but it's also 
it's one of the things that when I say it's not a hard read at all, one of the things that's very helpful is that this guy Rinsler had complete access to Lucasfilm archives. Right. So you have all these great illust- pictures. It's a, it's, it's a picture book. It's almost like a coffee table book. It's got it's got copies of the storyboards, very early storyboards, uh, the concept art that Ralph McQuarrie did. Uh, photos of on uh, the set. Photos on the set. You get to see Lucas with a face palm, like every, like ten different ways. Uh, you get to Poor see uh, you get to see like some nice you know goofing around on set where you know you get the sense that Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher. I mean, they were pretty young yeah. and they're pretty green, but they were just enjoying it. Like, and I love Mark Hamill says at one point, you know, I would do anything for George Lucas and. If he decides after this, you know, I'm I'm going to go back to making student films, I'll act in those too. <laughs> yeah, and I I feel bad for Mark Hamill because it, he you know Harrison Ford became a big star. Right. Carrie Fisher, she 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 acted in a lot of movies. She became a writer, so she found her career her own way. Mark Hamill, it took a while for him to find a footing again after Star Wars. He was in the Big Red One. Well, oh yeah. Oh, and yeah, he, thank you. Oh, that is true. I, oh, I love the big red one. Oh, yeah. thank you for reminding me of that. I And, you know, he doesn't, his career doesn't tank after Star Wars. No, but, 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 I mean, but what did he do? But did he do that much significant between I think it's Skywalker say, and the Joker? I think it's fair to say that Mark Hamill, uh, his career, I think, was revitalized. By, it was by forever Joker. marked by Star Wars. Well, Star Wars, freak- but then, but then you have different generations, though. Obviously, yeah, everyone will know him as Luke Skywalker, but he might be more beloved as the Joker. Maybe. I, no, I don't know. That's no, a, no, no. Really? No, I don't think so. You don't think people love Mark Hamill more as the Joker than as Luke Skywalker? No, not a chance. Huh. Who knows? I told my sister. My sister was a fan of you know the Batman Superman animated series okay. when it came out. Sure. I told her that Mark Hamill was the Joker, and she didn't believe me. <laughs> Well, that just shows how great an actor he is. I had to show her a YouTube video of him doing the voice. Oh, that's that's such a great video. And and voice acting, in a way, becomes... I I don't want to put down voice actors, but voice acting becomes a kind of refuge for actors who don't don't quite make it. (sighs) And Mark Hamill's a great voice actor. It depends on your voice, though. I mean, Keith David's had a pretty good career going between voice and live action. Yeah. All right. but I I don't know. I guess we're getting off track but, here. I just but let, let's finish just off. Wish... Let's finish off with a thought because well, well let's not finish right now. But I want to introduce something that that really is it about the release of Star Wars or the success of it. It's not uh, it's not necessarily about that, but something relating to George at George Lucas's attitude towards Star Wars. Yes. All right. Yes. Because it's hard nowadays to really fathom what George Lucas thinks of his uh, of. Of Star Wars as his contribution to yeah. society. Uh-huh. I in a lot of ways it's come it's come back to bite him in the ass. <laughs> yeah, and, well, and it's really uh, it really determined the course of his career in a way. Yeah, and in, and not in a way that I think he really intended because and I think not the, and not necessarily in a way that he enjoys. No, because let's talk about the release of Star Wars and how George Lucas was really looking at the film because he. Yeah, he, I, he he was super pessimistic at the release time. Yeah. But even as the film became the success that it did, I still feel from reading this book that he never quite accepted it. And he never quite thought it was justified. Well, it depends what, at what point do you say, do you mean that he was saying that? Because there was a point where 
he said he like the the studio kept like when the movie first came out it's like oh my god it's such a big hit and george was like no no let's let's wait to see what happens you know sci-fi movies are always successful in the first couple weeks well he was being cautious do you mean after that i mean after that Uh, because um, star wars became an unqualified success i don't think that george lucas really thought of it as a personal success Huh, that's an interesting point, because I think the movie was very personal for him. It was personal, but throughout the film, the throughout the film's production, nothing really seemed to live up to George Lucas's expectations, except for John Williams' music. Yeah. Like, in every area of production, like, he seemed to be very disappointed, and John Williams was the only one who really delivered on the level he ex- he hoped for. I would say a couple of things happened with George Lucas. And reading this book, I feel a lot of empathy for him because, mm. again, as a creator, and maybe you maybe you felt this a little bit too, when you're creating something, you know, it, it's never quite what it comes out the way you imagined it. Or it, it, eventually, and as a filmmaker, I can say that when you start writing something, you feel so good about it. But then as you go through the process of actually making it, you have to deal with so many technical problems because it come, it, it, it's out of your hands. Woody Allen actually talks about this a lot. Like I, when I've read interviews with him, like he's often very, like he's talked about how with, with a few exceptions, he's always disappointed with the work he puts out. Yeah. And I don't know if that's preemptively to assuage his qu- critics, but I don't it, think it is. Cause I think that he, it's hard to tell with Woody Allen if he's serious he's, or not, whether he or is if he's making genuinely jokes. disappointed or he's chronically disappointed. I don't know. I mean, cause it's weird. Cause you would think somebody who does that much work in his career. I mean, clearly he loves making films. He, he, well, it's, it's, well, the way that he puts it, he said it's a good distraction from all the real problems of the world. Like, he says, like, you know, so I don't have to think about, like, black holes that will take over the universe and the end of existence. If I if I worry about how do I make this cut match with that cut, and if I need a voiceover, that distracts me from that. Right. Um, and, and George but, Lucas... but Lucas has a little bit of that, though. I think that he just... He he couldn't quite match up what he had in his mind to what came out. Right, and this became and this was exacerbated by all the technical problems. Yeah, I mean, he you know the fact that he was, showed up from the UK was and a, they didn't have any shots ready. Yeah, they they were there. There was a giant rush to get to Tunisia because Fox was stalling. Yeah, in negotiations and Tunisia didn't cooperate. He didn't get as much footage as he would have wanted. And then in London he had all these problems, and then he finishes shooting in London and gets back to Los, gets back to Los Angeles and ILM and sees that they've only got one shot done, yeah. and that they've blown half their budget. Yeah, and ILM does pick up the slack, yeah. and they they do probably some of the greatest special effects work ever. Yeah. But I think George Lucas looks at what could have been if everything had gone right, and he and that the film would have been so much closer and so much better than what. He, he ultimately saw. And what about sequels? The producer of Star Wars, Gary Kurtz. We had a lot of, of uh, speculation about sequels to Star Wars, and we are working on story material that will develop into potentially one or more motion pictures that will use the same characters. I like to consider them different adventures rather than direct sequels. Obviously, the Empire is still there. Darth Vader is still there. And uh, it, it's going to also evolve with new characters coming in, uh, new problems, new worlds. It's still being written, the sequel, and we're all signed for them, to do them, Mark Harrison and I. 
and uh, the robots, uh, 3PO and R2. But I, that's as far as I know. I heard that they were probably going to have an ice planet and uh, a tropical planet, like the fourth moon of Yavin. You know, if you want to say, like, I rewatched certain parts of Star Wars in the past week, like on YouTube, just a couple of, you know, scenes like the opening, the closing dogfight. Okay, yeah, a few effects here and there, a little dated, but yeah. it holds up, the pace of it holds up so well. Yeah, remember I was talking about the special editions, how the one thing that really has improved is the dogfighting? They, but I feel like they, they only added a couple of shots, though. Yeah, but I mean, wise. but it certainly works better than what's there. I mean, that's what you were talking about. It looks a little dated. When the special edition replaces those scenes, it is admittedly much more effective. Yeah. Now, whether or not George Lucas had that in his mind or not is, well, that's, we don't know. But so much of the film was out of his hands yeah. because of the problems he encountered. But also just the nature of, you know, he was somebody who, I, I think that part of it as well, for somebody like him, and this is why I say I felt some empathy for him, was because, again, he started out as somebody who didn't really know any other way to do it. Like, initially, you know, I'm going to do everything myself. I'm going to shoot the movie because I'm a cameraman. I love editing, so I'm going to edit the movie. But in this case, he had to hand off the movie to a cameraman who, in the book, comes off as a little bit of a jerk. Or oh, him and the producer getting the tiffs. Yeah, and, as well. and there were the problems with his first editor. Yeah, and so he had to get new editors. And so, you know, through that process, you know, that's just, it, it transforms. It, yeah. It's like building a car that gets like, you have to add new things to it and it changes. So I, and, I, and part of it too is that Star Wars is just, it, it became so much bigger than him. Yeah. And it, it's like, I, I sort of mentioned earlier in the in the show about the, the example of when the Who made Bob O'Reilly and it won't get fooled again, who's next? That became like so much bigger than them. Yeah. Now it's like they almost become a slave to it. It's like if you go to a Who show, you like you, it does not. It's not satisfying unless you hear those two songs played. <laughs> like if I, I think if if any of us if if I went to because I actually saw the Who live, and if I had not seen them do Bob O'Reilly live, I would have been mad. Would have rioted. Yeah. If I hadn't heard, I hear the fans. I, I would have been happy if they had done half the songs from Quadrophenia, but that's just me. Oh, me too. All right, but so the point is with George Lucas... I think that I think that he, he doesn't view it as a product of his own... Like, so much of the film was out of his hands that he, that yeah. any praise he gets for it, is he feels is probably undeserved. Yeah, I mean, or, some of that, some of that might just be... just simply, in his mind, because of all the stress and of all the compromises he had to make, he's really just not happy with it. Yeah, I mean... It's and, just... and there's no amount of convincing you can ever do. Because we love Star Wars. We don't know... You know, we saw that film. We saw it with no baggage, with no uh, preconceived notions. Yeah. No no idea of the efforts or the intention behind it. We just saw it for what it was. Yeah. Images on the screen. And we love it. Well, that's like... There are two movies that, that come to mind. One of them I thought of when I read the book, and one I just thought of now... Uh, one is Jaws, right? Which, Jaws. of course, if you know the background, the, the making mi- of Jaws, that was a kind of a disaster. Yeah, I mean, as Leonard Maltin says, it's it's one of those miracle movies where everything yeah. went wrong, where everything went wrong, but everything ended up going right because. And I I kind of wonder, like, because Spielberg has talked about how he looks back on Jaws, the making of it, and and has no fond memories. <laughs> but I I wonder. <laughs> I love. I saw a documentary on the making. But of he Jaws. must like it. Yeah, I saw a documentary on the yeah, making. Yeah, I probably saw the same one. 
Okay, let's not get into that. We're not going to talk about. But I, I meant stuff. to. But break... you and I, you and I, we were talking about. But uh, the other thing I thought of too is the Wizard of Oz, which really? I've I've heard I've read a little bit about the making of that movie, and that also had a lot of problems. Like what? Well, for example, the actor there was another there was a different actor hired. Oh, uh, to the, play tin the Tin Man. man. It was and, Buddy Ebsen. Yeah, and he Jed Clampett himself. Yeah, and he was he was let go from the movie because the makeup that was put on him made him sick. Yes, he got he got poisoning from the from the aluminum powder that was his makeup. Yeah, and I think there were other technical issues on the movie that had multiple directors, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and yet somehow, I mean, I I guess the question I guess is like. Maybe if they thought the movie came out the way they wanted to, yeah, it's always it's always tough because as an artist, you know, you always build up things in your mind. Like I I mentioned Woody Allen because he said when he writes a script, you know, he says, "Oh, I think I'm I, I feel like I'm writing the next Citizen Kane or yeah. the next uh, Bicycle Thief," and then the movie comes out and it's like I can't ever watch this again. Yeah, and it never and it could come out exactly the opposite of what you intend, but then when people see it, it baffles you that it's so successful. And you feel like this is so phony. Yeah, and, then, <laughs> and and it's not because you're pretentious. It's not because you're full of yourself or you're a- arrogant. It's just because you have this weird emotional connection to this piece of art you made, and it's not oh, listening to you. And people love it. And for I some just reason. and I just have thought. Oh, maybe part of it with Lucas was because he could never really. Because sometimes with filmmakers, you could take a step back years later and say. Oh no! Well, I actually, you know, now I feel much better about this than I yeah. did at the time. But Lucas became like it was like an umbilical cord to Star Wars for like the rest of his career. Yeah. So he could never really properly take a step back to evaluate it. Yeah, I mean that that's a valid uh, that's a valid idea too. I mean, maybe you know he, you may not like Star Wars, but you're tied to it forever. Yeah, like I very he, few he, people approach George Lucas and say, "I love American Graffiti." Some people do. I'm sure they do, but they but they never say. They just say, "I love your work. I love Star." That's well. That was also the thing with Alec Guinness for years after making the oh, movie, yeah. because he he didn't hate that people would say, "I love Star Wars." It's that that that's the only thing they would say yeah. after you know winning an Oscar, being in Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, you know well, uh, he had a small part in Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, I mean, Alec Guinness was a marvelous actor who did. Tons of great work in yeah. England. Yeah. And what we know him for is for playing a secondary character in a blockbuster film. But we, no, but he was in, well, Lawrence Arabe, also The Bridge on the River Kwai. Oh, Bridge on the River Kwai. Which right. is, you know, one, that also won Best Picture. So, yeah. like, how like, after Star Wars came out, how many people came up to him and said, oh, I love the Lady Killers? Yeah. <laughs> or I love. The uh, man in the white suit. I love the Lavender Hill mob. Yeah. <laughs> Very little of that, but. Or yes, fr- or from the horse's mouth. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think anybody loves the horse's mouth actually. Yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah, I don't and know. that's and that's a weird thing that seemed to trickle to, to a lot of the Star Wars cast. I mean, I don't know how exactly how Mark Hamill feels about Star Wars. I mean, he was he was enthusiastic enough to come back and and work well, on Force Awakens, but I mean, well, well, but yeah, but that's hot. Well, Harrison Ford made a made a quip which I. 
I almost wonder if it's really even quip because like Conan Bryan, I think asked him in an interview, like, so why did you come back to this movie? And he was like, <laughs> for the money. Yeah. Yeah. He basically <laughs> said, cause they gave me a check yeah. and he's probably not lying. He probably got, Oh, I know for a fact he got paid much more than new cast members. Yeah. Which probably was a big factor in determining what happens to his character. Oh, <laughs> that's a valid point. <laughs> um, Carrie Fisher. I, I, <laughs> I, I would hesitate to say anything about Star Wars in her presence. Well, well, she, well, she, her, well, her big line that she's said for years is, "Every time I look in the mirror, I have to give George Lucas five bucks." Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> he owns the likeness of Princess yeah, Leia. Yeah, right. Um, so I, I don't know. Final thoughts about this book? Because I, I think this is marvelous. This book is this is a great book. And even though it's huge, you will go through this in two weeks or so. Yeah, I mean, it won't, you, it, thought, you won't go into it over a day, but... If you were a Star Wars superfan and you thought there was nothing else you could learn about Star Wars before reading this book, you will learn tons of new stuff about Star Wars. Well, Nate, more than that, I think that even if you're just a movie fan, or what, like reading about the process of making a movie, this has a lot of great things to learn about you know, how a film goes through a process in pre-production, how, right. how you deal with your cast, how you, you know, deal with technical issues on how a set. How to be patient when you're writing that script. Yeah. Oh, man. And, yeah. and not to be afraid to let other people suggest changes or even make changes. Yeah. And the other thing to mention about Lucas also, though, is how he is, like, it's interesting how later on you described how disappointing he was. Because during the shooting of it, he was very calm. He wasn't one of these people who would no, make a big thing about it. And he I think was that, not emotional. No, he well, which would be both to the benefit of problems on set, but also uh, the actors would be like, we would just try to mess with him to get a rise. Because <laughs> I think Carrie Fisher said he looked like he was about to burst into tears half the time. <laughs> yeah. I But uh, film in itself. It's, it's, if you're going to be a filmmaker, there's something you have to learn, which is that film is probably the most collaborative artistic medium yeah. ever. And if you want to be this great auteur director, fine. Be, you know, Become famous. Yes. But you're going to have to realize that none of your work is possible without the work of dozens and perhaps even hundreds of other people. Lucas is the author without, of Star yeah. Wars. Lucas is the author of Star Wars, but he's not the only author. No. Because again, not by a long like shot. I said... If, if you don't have John Williams, there is no Star Wars. If you don't have Ralph McQuarrie, there's no Star Wars. That too. And all, even Harrison Ford is kind of an auteur yeah. in that way. Because, I mean, how he made Han Solo what, what is different than if uh, if they'd gotten, like... A lot of the other thing, too, in the it's book... Christopher Walken. Oh! And Tui here tells me you're looking for a passage to the Alderaan system. James Earl Jones. Oh yeah, that they got him to do the voice. I mean, Star Wars is almost unimaginable without James Earl Jones as Darth Vader. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and uh, I'm trying to think if there are any other auteurs. I mean, you could say the editors are also. Dykstra. What was his first name? D John Dykstra. John Dykstra. He went on to do the effects for, I believe, Dykstra and Edlin. They, I mean, they stuck around. They did a lot of work in that time. They did a lot of the big visual effects movies. Oh, and I remember Richard Edlin because I think he did the effects for Ghostbusters. And, oh, and uh, what's his name? God's sakes. Who directed The Rocketeer? Johnston. Yeah, he's Joe a big... Joe Johnston. Joe Johnston's a big part of this. I, I, I was reading his name throughout the book, and I'm like, it's not the same Joe Johnston. Yes, it is. It is. And I was like, yeah, it is him. Yeah. 
It's he. Lucas kind of helped. Is like a little film school. Oh, Rick Baker did some of the puppets for the cantina. Right. Which is pretty cool. All right. So, and by the way, I, I, I'm also, I think probably soon, I'm not quite sure what point, because I'm a little bit Star wars out at the moment, <laughs> if that's a term. I think I'm a little Star wars out. You can get that way about things. But he also made a, he wrote two other books. He wrote, About the making of Empire and the making of Return of the Jedi, right? Yeah. I mean, from what I'm I've gonna, read. I'm going to read those. Yeah. From what I've read, Empire is still in that, like, we're using... Uh, interviews from that period. I think mm-hmm. Return of the Jedi is not quite the same. I think they take interviews from other periods of time. Maybe. So they might not be in that same enclosed space, but if it's ex- if it's as exhaustively searched, I, I, I want to know how we made these other movies, man. Empire is going to be really interesting. Well, I've, I've heard that Empire went... Because I thought Empire Strikes Back initially, I thought that went pretty smoothly, but the, from more I've heard about it, it actually was even more of a mess than A New Hope. Oh boy! Oh we boy! We get to profit from George Lucas's suffering. <laughs> profit not make one great. <laughs> That's a bad invitation. All right, but the so, book is the making of Star Wars by J. J. W. Rinsler. If you read it, it, yeah. If it you is. read it, let us know what you think. Uh, send us an email, uh, wagesofcinema at gmail dot com. Uh, you can leave us a message on the Facebook page uh, for Wages of Cinema podcast, or send us a tweet at Wages of Cinema. Um, and we're also, uh, you can also find us on, uh, iTunes, Stitcher at SoundCloud. Hopefully you're right now listening to us on one of those platforms. If you can go on iTunes and maybe give us a, a good rating, that would be very helpful for us to increase our visibility on iTunes podcasts. Yes, that would be great. And, uh, and yeah, so this was, uh, quite a good talk. I feel oh, much I, better about having it. I, I'm going to make a movie before I get home. <laughs> with the now help just, of dozens of others now i'm just thinking about this one short which i saw this a long time ago and i barely remember it but it's called george lucas in love and it's this little short film from like the late 90s some i think it was from some film school student made this and it's all about how like george lucas when he was in college like he he's he like met some girl he fell in love with but like all of the little things like that would later inspire Star Wars are there around him in college. I love you. I know. <laughs> Which he didn't even write. I know. Thank you. All right. And for, uh, we, we had a great time recording tonight and, uh, hopefully next time we'll come back with some, uh, new movies. Uh, February looks like uh, a pretty good month. For hopefully for some new uh, releases. And next month is the sequel to Cloverfield, which we should all be looking forward to. Well, yeah. The, well, well, you didn't seem to be looking forward to it when I showed oh, you the trailer. Oh, I, I am ecstatic about this. Oh, you are? Oh, you changed your mind? Yes, I've changed my mind. Great. I, I'm I'm going to see it on opening night. Great. With you, hopefully. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. And then I think also, uh, I mean, obviously Batman Superman comes out that month, too. We'll which see. I'm... I'm a little less excited. For yeah, it. towards the end of this month, uh, we'll see if Mad Max takes home the Oscar for Best Picture. Yes. Come All on, right. we can push for it. We can do it. What's a day? What's a lovely day and for an if Oscar? If anybody knows uh, a member of the Academy, please uh, try to get us in contact. We would really <laughs> like to get in on this voting. Nonsense. Yeah, guess in if you know what I mean. All right. So for everyone at the Wages of Cinema, I'm Jack. And I'm Andrew. And remember, the Wages of Cinema is death. Peace. But then again, uh, George can do anything he wants now. The, this, the first one has been so successful that he could set the next one in Redondo Beach if he chooses to do so.
There are questions that still need to be answered. Like what about the future of the princess? And who she is going to end up with is still anybody's guess. Uh, I will say that uh, uh, Luke is more devoted to her, I think, than Han Solo is. I would probably describe Han Solo as the cynical mercenary space pirate with the cream filling, you know. He's a nice guy. She's really a chump if she goes for Han Solo. <laughs>